2: talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there.
0: Hey, all. This is Glenn Kirshner, and you're listening to Muller, She Wrote. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs.
2: That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is.
0: No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Mueller She Wrote. I'm your host, Alison Gill, the artist formerly known as A.G. Today, I'll be chatting again with our friend Pete Struck. His uh, paperback version of his book Compromised comes out Tuesday, January 25th. And we're going to be discussing what's going on with uh, Tom Barrack and his associate, Grimes, not the one that married Elon, different Grimes, and and how that whole investigation is going. And then, of course, we'll have some sabotage, followed by the Fantasy Indictment League. Uh, I'm very excited about it. But up first, we have that interview. Let's listen. All right. I'm happy today to be joined by the author of Compromised, which comes out in paperback on Tuesday, January 5th. Pete struck. Pete, how are you?
2: Hey, I'm good. Allison getting ready for this uh, soft launch next week, which is exciting. But...
1: Yeah, it's going to be great. So if you if you all oh, I know everyone already has the hardback version, now you can get the paperback version, easier to travel <laughs> with, you know, more comfortable to set on your bed next to you if you're single like me and that's where you keep your remotes and your cats and your books. That's uh, you know, takes up less space. It'll be good. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you today because a story came out about a, an interesting court hearing. We all know Tom Barrack was indicted last July, along with a guy named Grimes and another guy named Rashid al-Malik al shah who actually took off a few days after he's he's on the lam. Uh, but the the other two have been indicted. They've they've pled not guilty. We were all sort of wondering if there was a plea deal maybe in the works with Tom Barrack. Like he didn't seem the kind of guy that would go to jail for anybody. Like say Weisselberg would, uh, the CFO of the Trump organization, but. It it appears that there was a hearing because Grimes wants to pay for, no, excuse me, Tom Barrick wants to pay for Grimes' attorney. Uh, And so I wanted to ask you, first of all, who that attorney is and, you know, why the prosecution may have wanted to discuss this with the court.
2: Yeah. So the attorney, it's an interesting question. And, you know, the the attorney in question for Grimes is Abby Lowell. And your folks may remember that he uh, I mean, he has been around in the D.C. bar for a lot of government work for a long time. Um, Certainly has, you know, again, as as an investigator, not as a attorney, I think, has a certain reputation amongst the bar. And by that, I mean prosecutors and other attorneys. which, I mean, to charitably to charitably frame it, I don't know that he is seen as a, you know, sort of um, upstanding scion of... of uh...
1: Ethical truth.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I want to be careful because he is not, I mean, there are unethical attorneys, there are sleazy attorneys. He is not, in my experience, that, but uh, he is also not somebody that... Um, you know, th- there are there are you get a range of opinions when you talk to people who have worked with him, who have dealt with him. And so, you know, certainly he, you know, people, your listeners in particular may remember him from representing Jared Kushner uh, in some some things that came up. Jimmy Gorelick was originally representing him at some point in time. and. You know abby lowell took over this is in the early days of the the muller um special counsel office when i was still there so i don't want to you know get into anything i shouldn't or can't talk about but there were some interesting dynamics that went on in terms of what was going on in jared kushner's life some of it unrelated to the special counsel's office i know there was a lot of media reporting about his clearance and his inability to get a clearance and um information and and facts surrounding that where Abby Lowell and became involved, uh, certainly in some of that. So he's got a long history. um, And it is not, you know, we were before we went live here, we were talking a little bit about, you know, why would Grimes do this? And specifically, why would he allow Barrick to pay for his defense? And people may say, well, you know, Lowell's a good attorney, why would he not? And the, the reason why not is at least twofold. And in this case, the government, after hearing from the defense attorneys, brought this matter to the court and said, hey, we want to make sure that Grimes is aware of the potential conflicts, um, because there are two things in particular that would come up if you are being paid by a different defendant. There are a couple of areas where it might impact you if you're Grimes. One is, do you agree to uh, cooperate? You know, do you go in for a lesser sentence or to reduce your criminal exposure by providing inculpatory information about Barrick? And then the second thing is, um, just ran out of my head, but it is a similar conflict in terms of, you know, if you are thinking about whether or not to testify against him, there's a question about if you're Abby Lowell, if you are advising your client to do something that is against the interests of Barrick who, by the way, is the person paying your legal bills, are you, do you have an inherent conflict there? Now Lowell assured the court, no, you know, I can absolutely do this. There's no, you know, sort of strings attached. You know, I am here to represent Grimes, that nothing is going to impact that, you know, sort of zealous advocacy for Grimes and only Grimes. But if knowing what I know of Abby Lowell, knowing that tom Barrick is paying him if i were grimes i don't know that i would be resting that easy now could be grimes doesn't have better options right i mean he does not have lowell is a good attorney he may not have the financial wherewithal to go out and find you know somebody to represent him certainly pro bono or at some drastically reduced rate because my understanding is he is not you know barrack is wealthy beyond belief I don't think Grimes is, so he may not have better options, even though this isn't ideal. So it's all it's all curious. Uh, like you, I thought maybe um, Barrick would would plea. Um, I think certainly there would be some interest on the part of the Department of Justice about whether or not he might have information relating to the the Trump campaign, the Trump inaugural committee that would be of interest to prosecutors and investigators from the standpoint of what Trump may or may not have done. but. You know, he he may not or he may not be interested in doing that or they may think that just independent of any sort of cooperation that they can, you know, dig in and defend their case and have a reasonable chance of winning a trial. I don't I don't know.
1: Yeah. And and something you brought up and the story uh, that that came out also mentions, uh, which is interesting, is that whatever the relationship is between. Grimes and Barrick, because I'll just read to you from the article, Grimes worked as an assistant to Barrick at his real estate private equity firm called, you know, Colony Capital. And while, quote, bank records and telephone records reflect that prior to his arrest, Grimes listed Barrick's $15 million home in Aspen, Colorado, as his primary residence um and that's in a November 2nd pleading by US attorney Brian Peace and and he went on to say further thousands of emails and text messages communications obtained during the course of this investigation confirm that the defendant and Barrick have a close albeit asymmetrical relationship meaning you know they aren't similarly situated especially consider you know as far as finances go and it appears they either live together, or Grimes is using his address as his uh, barracks address as his uh, main resident. But residence, but it also shows that bank records and telephone records reflect that he lived there as well. So, it's a it's a interesting kind of shines a little bit of light and brings a little curiosity into what the relationship between these two gentlemen are. I mean, the one is way younger than the other. I think Grimes is like twenty eight or something like that, right? Uh, and Barrack is in his sixties. So, you know that kind of didn't really come up a lot elsewhere in the pleading about their personal relationship which could also prevent conflicts of interest if if i'm if i'm
2: correct yeah I, but although i think that's something that you can't i mean it it may certainly do that it may present a a, a conflict or certain chilling on the willingness of Grimes to testify about Barrick, but that's true of any friendship. You know, when two people are engaged in a conspiracy or alleged conspiracy that, you know, just because of those bonds of friendship or, or whatever it may be, that it's you're gonna run into that. Now, the interesting thing is I'm certain, given the probably volume of information that the government has in its possession, I'm sure they have a lot more information than we do about the nature of the relationship, whether Grimes was living there, whether he was, you know, kind of like a, personal assistant taking care of all kinds of things who was just involved in this one particular set of, you know, alleged illegal activity I like you I did not have any idea prior to reading the charging document that there's anything other than, you know, this clear, you know, alleged co conspirator who was at a much lower level sort of helping and engaging in the the alleged criminal activity but you know from this yeah it certainly looks like there is more there, separate and distinct in addition to fronting up to $2 million. And so you're, again, you may know this from litigation, and I had no idea until, well, I had a little bit just from the other side, but when you start getting into, you know, certainly federal criminal defense with high level legal work, you burn through $2 million in a heartbeat. You are gonna go through that easily in under a year. It just, when you start talking about attorneys of the stature of an Abbey Lowell, but really any top tier law firm that, you know, when you think about big firms, particularly when you do, you know, criminal work for sure, federal criminal work, but also, you know, congressional investigations or very high profile work for your listeners. And for me, for you, $2 million may seem impossibly large, but it's uh, it's nothing. You can burn through that so quickly. Now, most of these top flight law firms If they run into a government employee or somebody who doesn't have the wherewithal, they will either do it, you know, pro bono or at a slash reduced rate because they understand, you know, somebody, a government, you know, me, for example, or or a different public servant isn't going to be able to pay what, you know, some CEO of a fortune 100 company can or that fortune 100 company itself so What is billed versus what is paid is very different. But the I think people would be shocked and stunned the amount of money that exists and powers the top level legal work in this nation. And it's it's huge. So two million is a lot. It wouldn't surprise me if they blew through that very quickly and had to raise that two million up to four or five, but you know, we'll see where that goes.
1: Yeah, and they brought up that contingency too, right? Because the judge was like, Well, two million, you, you say it's capped at 2 million because that was one of the arguments. Oh, well we're only capping it at 2 million. And the judge goes, well what happens after 2 million? And they go, well then we renegotiate and see if they'll pay for more. So it doesn't it seems like sort of an arbitrary and non-committal cap and and nor did the judge come back and say you must cap it at any specific rate or or total or billable whatever, you know, billable versus payable, uh, etc. So it it seems like if it goes over 2 million, that Tom Barrack would be happy to just throw more money at it. But it it is really an interesting, and I can't, I personally can't, haven't heard of, since we've been going through this, I mean, outside maybe Brian Benchkowski being head of the criminal division, I haven't seen like a bigger glaring conflict of interest. <laughs> I mean, this is pretty straightforward.
2: Yeah, and it's not you know they will have and in addition to this i mean there there is almost certainly i would bet what's called a jda joint defense agreement which allows the the defense attorneys to you know sort of discuss and coordinate amongst themselves and have you know some idea about because there are common interests there aren't those diverge in some cases i mean clearly and this is you know, what what their defensive posture is going to be information that is exculpatory or inculpatory to the extent it implicates both of the clients. There will be a sort of can be a sharing, um, you know, and kind of a common interest. There are a number of privileges on the defense side that might attach to this, but that's exactly the point where You know, yes, there are many similar things that overlay with each other between Grimes and Barrick, but there are certainly there are points where they diverge and that's where this ethical conflict potentially comes to a head that is, you know. If Grimes is able to say this, I was told to do this, this was not my idea, this was something that Tom came up with or told me to do or I said to him, are you sure we should do that, or I had concerns anything that would tend to. inculpate Barrick that the government want might want to say great then Grimes come in and we want you to testify and say one and two and three and four that and we'll cut you a deal. That's the kind of thing if you're saying, okay, well, fine. But on the other hand, you know, I've already racked up, you know, three point two million dollars and I'm negotiating to go over that two million dollars. And what's going to happen if I suddenly, you know, walk into a proffer session with the Department of Justice and start spilling my guts about everything that Tom did? It, isn't so it better do it apparent... before
1: you hit that two million dollar mark.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, or get, yeah, or get like, yeah, get to get whatever money you're going to get and then, and then go do it. And again, it's not, it's could, is, is Tom Barrett going to send, you know, the knuckles out there with a the lead pipe to go after him? No, of course not. That's, but, but there are different ways of bringing pressure and uh, impacting people that are not so ham fisted. Um, and I think that's, that's exactly why you saw the government do what they did and, and file that. You know, notice with the the judge to, to kind of flag that issue,
1: and I think that that's why you know, additionally, why some legal experts are thinking that this signals the fact that neither of them, at least at this point, are cooperating or willing to cooperate, uh, because like you 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 brought up the JDA, right, the Joint Defense agreements. so one of the ways that. I used to, you know, put beans on stuff and and say, "Ooh, someone's gonna flip." Is if somebody backed out of it of a JDA, right? That's a, that's a one big giant huge signal that you're no longer in a joint defense agreement with a group of people. Uh, you know, I'm specifically thinking way back to like the Reince Priebus Bannon days, where they were all represented by the same lawyer, and and if any of them broke broke away, it, it, that you know, it's because they, there's a disagreement there, legally or legal or otherwise. So that's why I think a lot of legal experts are like, this is a signal that, at least in so far, it appears as though neither of them are cooperating, sticking with their not guilty pleas.
2: Yeah, and I don't know that you're going to get them to. Flip against the other. I mean, barrack the, the government, at the end of the day, could care. I shouldn't say they could care less. The government will never go to barrack and say, "Hey, if you if you tell us everything about Grimes, we'll, we'll go easy on you and really go after him." That's not the way this works. They're going after everything in this is targeting barrack and all of these, you know, to the extent that other people are charged, sure, they broke the allegedly, you know, broke. have There's reason to believe they broke the law, but. The end goal here is Barrack. It is yeah, not you know, the, the big the, fish
1: in this particular pond. Right, and then the hope unless... with him is
2: right that you know, independently, maybe you get him, but then also maybe you get him to um, talk about higher ups or others. And I don't think in this case you know, you bring up Bannon and Priebus. I mean, that was like a a, a little, not only was it a cesspool, but they all hated each other. I mean, there are a thousand different factions. They're all dishing on each other. Half the reason that, you know, there were so many extraordinarily disturbing reports coming out about the Trump administration is they all hated each other and they were all talking about the other guy. And whether that was Kellyanne or Corey Lewandowski, who, you know, hated um, Manafort and, you know, Scaramucci had certain opinions about all this and Priebus and Bannon and all, you know, their opinions of everybody had an opinion about somebody else that they sucked and so they were talking to whoever would listen about how that other person not me was awful and so you got you know just all this dish coming out of the white house but you don't you don't have that with yeah.
1: And they certainly could, like you said, flip, stick together on, on a a JDA or, you know, we're just, we're, we're together and flip together on, on other people. doesn't seem like in this case, um, they're going to flip on one another. And like you said, if somebody flips on somebody, it's got to be the little guy against the big guy. And in this case, the asymmetrically situated uh, Grimes would be that guy.
2: Right. And knowing that, so what do you have knowing that, that they don't You know, Barrick's smart enough to understand that, okay, they're not, they have no, they're not going to use me to get to Grimes, and so let me take care of Grimes, because the only way this is going to go is flipping upwards, so let me take, do what I can to take care of that, you know, and some of it is, you know, he has the financial ability to do that, but it certainly is in Barrick's interest to have Grimes very well represented, if that representation results in Grimes fighting the charge rather than flipping. Yeah, and the other interesting so,
1: thing, too, is is if if I'm not mistaken, if if let's say they both say let's flip up on somebody together, if you come in and do your proffer session, you have to tell him everything you know. So if Grimes knows stuff about Barrick, he would have to tell them if if he were to enter a full and truthful cooperation agreement, a lot like when, when Michael Cohen went in, didn't give him everything in the Southern District of New York. And so they didn't offer him, you know, an official agreement for cooperation or or plea. So it's like it seems like that's that conflict of interest will still play a role.
2: And that's where, you know, a good attorney will work the government hard to sculpt that proffer session. And I mean, you know, we've gone round and round about, you know, kind of attorneys, again, on the investigative side, working with prosecutors saying, OK, you know, we want we want so-and-so to come in for a proffer session and then the attorney will push back and say, well, you know, either no or okay, maybe, but then they'll try and say, okay, but we're only going to talk about topic X, you know, and so in this case, you know, if Lowell being a good attorney, I can very much imagine him saying, all right, well, Again, I don't even think they will get to the stage of going in for a proffer, but were they to do it, one avenue might be, I'm going to, we'll come in for a proffer, but we're talking about this very narrow set of facts and events. And we don't want you talking about, about outside that. That's not what the proffer is. So the government's sitting down there and if the government wanted to say, hey, did you work with Mr. Barrick on the inaugural committee? Or are you aware of where that money went? Are you aware about it? that? Is, you know, then the attorney, the defense attorney will step in and say, hey, look, no, that we're not here to talk about that today. We're here for this proffer session, just to talk about these you know, things within the four corners of the agreement. So as long as it's agreed yes, upon ahead of time, you know, yeah. you can, you can get charged if you go into a proffer session and lie or materially omit things, but a good defense attorney is going to really scale back the scope of the discussion of what's going on there so that, you know, you get credit for what your client's doing, but at the same time, you're not opening your client up for, you know, a, 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 a not a wild goose chase but you know anything a free-for-all on the part of the government to explore everything he knows
1: yeah well makes sense um let's talk about your book just for a second Uh, remind everybody what your role was in the Mueller investigation
2: yeah so so for Mueller, i was just it was interesting i was coming off the um we just wrapped up the investigation into hillary clinton's use of a private email server which i um led with a with a kind of a co-lead analyst and literally had just put the finishing touches on that. And we had started seeing the Russians poking around on the cyber front with a lot of the systems and the the DNC and the DCCC and other places. And as we were looking, you the Bureau of the Cyber Division was looking at that, then we suddenly, you know, we came across the information during a um, release by WikiLeaks of some of the um, hacked material that the Russians had gotten a hold of that triggered a memory and a referral a bit of information that came from a allied foreign nation saying hey you know we had this meeting with a guy named George Papadopoulos overseas in the spring of 2016 you know he mentioned that somebody in the Trump campaign had received an offer of assistance from the Russians or you know saying that they had damaging information on Clinton and Obama that they were offering to coordinate the release of that to help Trump and then seeing WikiLeaks really doing exactly that, right? Releasing all this information that had been stolen by the Russians that everybody in the Trump campaign was crying about triggered the memory that started, that created the case that was known as Crossfire Hurricane that the Bureau started looking at at the end of July, 2016, that progressed. I mean, so we started, and again, I know this isn't Mueller, but the genesis of that investigation really began in the summer of 16. And we're chasing that down running through the election with increasing concern about what we're seeing.
1: If I remember, it was like activated over a weekend because of uh, what was found out. So like July 23rd, 24th, something like that. You like, 29th, Oh yeah. yeah. I remember Alexander Downer with this and the Mifsud and the thing. Let's get somebody over there. And, and it was like within 24, 48 hours that you guys were on it.
2: Yeah, we were really, we were running. And, you know, again, the kind of the the absurd part of this is what, the, the name of the nation, let alone the individuals who provided the information, has never been released by the U.S. government, Having and so I can't release it. Having said that, Alexander Donner, who is the High Commissioner, the equivalent of the Ambassador of Australia to the U.K., has publicly stated, as has George Papadopoulos, yes, you know, we're the people who met with each other and had this discussion. So I can point you to their public statements, but I cannot, as a former U.S. government employee, tell you whether or not that's accurate from the US government's perspective. But yeah, we were running. And the scary thing was, you know, because this was exceptionally, the allegations were extraordinarily great, right? That the, the Russian, probably our, our foremost global adversary, were helping, wittingly potentially helping one of the two candidates for the president of the United States of America, and in a way that we've never seen in our nation's history. And so we were sprinting like crazy and the concerning part, you know, and that was in late, I think, July 29th, or we got it and cases actually opened on thirty or thirty-one July. I'm not I don't remember anymore. Um, but we were sprinting and sprinting with the idea that this is really potentially horrible and we need to understand what's going on, and sprinting because we needed to figure it out before the election, if not sooner, and concern because we had already been in the middle of this political maelstrom with the Clinton investigation and gotten dragged into the general election and pulled the FBI in there in a way none of us wanted. And so we wanted to avoid that. So we're doing all this in secrecy and sprinting and sprinting and sprinting. And most most things, most cases in my experience, you know, as you investigate, things start coming to a head. They start narrowing and your little candidate pool gets narrow and you're excluding people and you're focusing down on understanding. And we're sprinting and everywhere we look, it's bad. And it just keeps getting (laughs) bigger and bigger. And like Manafort's done all kinds of crazy bad shit with Ukraine and Russia. And Carter Page is a counterintelligence disaster. And Mike Flynn is a counterintelligence disaster. And one after another after another, everywhere we look, the path isn't getting smaller, it's getting wider. And so we're sprinting over an ever increasing front. And then we, we hit the election and sure shit, you know what? Nobody thought possible. Trump gets elected and it's like, well, what do we do now? you know, we haven't resolved any of these things. We, we are still concerned. We have all these concerns. And, you know, then that again to, you know, I don't wanna talk for 10 days about this, but essentially the Bureau then continues to investigate, tries to go and make the Trump administration know, like in the case of Mike Flynn, hey, look, he's had this contact with Kislyak, with others and try and, you know, give the administration a chance to succeed while trying to figure out what the administration knows about, what the left hand and knows about what the right hand is or isn't doing. And then, you know, Flynn gets fired, then Comey gets fired by Trump, and then the concern about, okay, why why did Trump fire him? The question about whether or not he did that to obstruct the investigation into Russia and the members of the campaign and no administration and eventually that all culminates with Mueller getting appointed a special counsel
1: mm-hmm. and to because preserve, i had worked to preserve this crossfire hurricane investigation and, and
2: right and and some of it is to get it out of the. there's an understanding of like okay well can the because the attorney general and the deputy attorney general and others are political appointees to preserve the both fact and appearance of independence of the investigation to put it in the hands of a special counsel and because i had worked All these cases in the beginning, I went over and set up, you know, working with Director Mueller, establishing the office, setting up its structure, staffing it out with agents and analysts and forensic accountants and computer forensic experts and building the team and the structure that became the Mueller investigation. So, are you are you so. part
1: of the Mueller team, or are you part of, are you head of the forty or so co-located FBI analysts and agents? And then, but, and then, uh, final question: there there were several teams. I think five that we know of now. Um, one for Manafort, one for obstruction, one for Russia. One for the e- Egypt money, which is now a new story, which the government's probably not talking about yet, uh, and uh, I, something else. But was there a specific team you were on, or were you kind of up at tippy top? No, I was up at the.
2: It's a good question. I was up at the top. I mean, I was the lead bureau person there, and the way you know it was all. If you if you were to ask me what was the Mueller team, I, I would include all the FBI personnel there. But the fact of the matter was, you know, that was a very interesting question about how you, if you get agents and analysts assigned you know you don't when when agents are working in a, a criminal investigation with prosecutors they don't report to those prosecutors i mean the prosecutors are driving the case towards prosecution and an assistant u.s attorney saying in dc or the eastern district of virginia or wherever they may be they are going to at some point take over the investigation and start saying okay here's what we're doing here's the information i need here's what we need to do but those agents still report up an fbi chain of command so if you were to ask me who was the Mueller team, I'd include everybody in the FBI. You know, there's roughly, I think, you know, forty-ish is, is about right. Um, again, that's I don't think the specific number's ever been released. But so while I would identify them and me at the top of that as the Mueller team, there was also very clearly like all the all the attorneys reported up to Director Mueller. That was the clear chain of command. The the FBI personnel. He directed that team, but again, that chain of command for everything from performance evaluations to financial administrative things to, you know, when it came to, you know, gun carrying agents and questions about, you know, use of lethal force if somebody went out and arrest and somebody discharged their weapon, the investigation of all that that chain of command would have gone up through the FBI channel so it was. It was a sort of bifurcated process. Um, I mean, think everyone but- does this all the
1: time. You know, I, I worked for the Department of Veterans Affairs. I was embedded with DOD, so I was the top dog VA person. I didn't report to the t- the top dog DOD person, but we worked together. I'm up in the VA chain of command. They're in the DOD chain of command, but we're all, we're part of the same interagency health office team. So, you know, so it's kind of a similar thing. The government does that all the time. Um, a lot of people always wonder what happened, uh, you know our understanding is any counterintelligence stuff went from, uh, to those FBI agents and they reported it somewhere. And I know a lot of people uh, wondered what happened to the counterintelligence piece. Um, you know, I, the, the only thing that I've gleaned from experts that I've talked to is that, well, there really isn't a resolution to a counterintelligence investigation that gets put out to the public. Um, but I know a lot of people have wondered what happened to that piece of it
2: yeah and this isn't going to make you feel good but i wonder about it too i mean i you know and i write about this some certainly in the book but also there, i wrote a new epilogue and afterward rather that that addresses some of these concerns that when we set it up the understanding was that for director muller in the special counsel's office and his mandate it was very much to look at violations of law and what he could or couldn't prove and prosecute that there's this whole question from the counterintelligence perspective about what happened that is not director Mueller or the prosecutor's job to go out and do a counterintelligence product, but it was the FBI. And so when I talked to then, you know, acting director, Andy McCabe, when I talked every, you know, I met twice, certainly beginning of the day, end of the day, and frequently many times during the day with director Mueller, it was all of our understanding that the FBI, specifically the FBI personnel on the Mueller team were going to be doing as part of their mission, this counterintelligence work. And the question of how to do that is really complicated because it's a huge task. It's probably a task unparalleled in size and resource intensity of anything the FBI ever did, but talking with Andy McCabe it's like, yeah, we're going to do it. And he understood that was going to go on. And then I get, you know, summarily dismissed off to human resources division uh, of the FBI after you know, DOJ leaks. Um, well, it Won't go down that path now, but essentially I am <laughs> pulled off the team listening to what Andy McCabe said later. He's like, well, I assumed this was going on in the team, which is my assumption, too. And I that he was shocked to hear that it didn't appear to get done. And my belief is I don't think it did. I think, you know, the closest Mueller came in, in his testimony, he said, well, you know, there was a team we had agents who came into the team and the counterintelligence leads would be spun off to the FBI. Now, that's good. And certainly, you know, if you go out and you do a search and you get material that points to some oligarch or somebody in Ukraine or Russia, or wherever the case may be, that might be of interest to the FBI from a counterintelligence perspective. It's good you send that to the FBI. But that isn't anywhere near close enough to sit there and say, what do we understand about Donald? Because remember, we opened a case on Donald Trump shortly before you know, Mueller was, was um, impaneled. There was a case on Trump himself. And sending a lead on Russian oligarch you know, Boris Badinov, is and his lovely wife Natasha, for those who watch Rocky and Bullwinkle, <laughs> that you know it isn't enough just to send the lead on him. Somebody needs to be sitting there and looking at the entire horizon of, you know, what is the counterintelligence exposure and problem of Donald Trump, and you can't just do that with these one-off referrals. You need to go back probably easily. 10, 15 years to the beginning of his work with, you know, in Moscow, all the money coming into his financial and other business empire, his travel, his communications. And that's so big and so hard that I fear. And I think I fear very accurately that it just wasn't done, that That there was not a comprehensive counterintelligence look And so the question I pose and would, you know, to ask, you know, your listeners, anybody out there in the government is like, well, So, so who loses because that was never done, he is still the kingmaker in Republican politics, he is undoubtedly the most vulnerable of any president we've ever had from a counterintelligence perspective and a risk perspective. And for the FBI, who is the lead agency for counterintelligence within the United States to have not done a comprehensive look at that, how is that, how is that acceptable? And it's, I don't know.
1: Yeah, and and the other thing too is I'll never forget you know talking to Andy, um, and wondering if if you did that and found out all this stuff at that point in that administration, who do you tell? Uh, the best we could come up with is you know, uh, the the, the eight, the gang, you know, the, say, the intelligence folks and in, in Congress, like who do. You, who do you tell? And so you, the Dutch, you know, you go, you go, to tell the <laughs> yeah, Dutch. Yeah, no, and you
2: can't. I mean, it's a good question, and that's something we all did, you know. And I, I remember thinking about it, and I don't, you know, I maybe many of us had that idea of like you, you do want to. You want to make this more than just the FBI, because the FBI is subordinate to the president. And so to the extent that you, you know, our system ideally works under a a system of checks and balances, to the extent you can incorporate and brief Congress to get the, you know. And so Andy, we prepped him and he went up there and he briefed the gang aid and answered all their questions. And they were fine, including, you know, then Speaker of the House, Ryan. And I think Mitch McConnell was the was the majority leader at that time any question they had was answered not a one of them said you shouldn't be doing this or we have a problem with it It was okay go go do that so and then you know ideally you find some way to get the court involved now you know we were doing every time you go out and you get a search warrant or you know apply for a fisa which ended up being problematic with carter page you're doing that but i i don't know and you know kind of thoughtful you know jack goldsmith has you know written I think he wrote a book but also talked a lot about you know, is it appropriate for the FBI to be investigating a President or not for some for a counterintelligence investigation and it's a good question, but I don't if there are problems like this, you don't just get a pass. Because suddenly you're elected President that doesn't seem possibly right to me to sit there and say well, you know you, you suddenly got legally or not elected, and so now, therefore. Not only can you not be prosecuted based on this old OLC memo, but you can't even be looked at on the intelligence side or from a counterintelligence issue because you're the president and that can't be right. And then I don't know how you then, you know, the FBI, on the other hand, can't be this little kingdom unto itself where they are investigating the elected leader of the nation without some sort of oversight and boundaries. Right. Because then it's just like, all right,
1: high five. We know. Now what? you know right
2: and i don't and, and nobody wants you know you think back to jade hoover nobody wants the fbi to be this kind of all powerful all-knowing entity who is going to investigate and know these things but you know not be sub how they how that knowledge and information might be misused we've had terrible history and a lot of very hard lessons learned uh from that but i don't know The the problem was everybody looked at this and kind of the thoughtful like attorneys and theorists and you know kind of constitutional scholars all looked at and said well you know okay he's no longer in office, so this is kind of a one off problem we're never going to see anybody like him again well guess what. (laughs) Here we go charging in the you know 2024 and all of a sudden, it may not be some hypothetical you know once in a lifetime outlier it may be staring down at us again and two and a half years.
1: Yeah. And then you also have the message that it's totally legal and totally cool uh, and <laughs> yeah. you know, encourages people to, to act that way again, especially if we don't go after those obstruction of justice charges. All of this is in the book. You've got new material in the paperback version of Compromised. I really highly recommend everybody pick it up. And also you get to read about ghost stories, which is one of the coolest things um, seriously in the history. Well, you're, you're, my, you're like the top Russian spy hunter in the universe, and I appreciate all that you've done, <laughs> and I thank you for being here today, and uh, we will talk again soon if, if more stuff comes out about Beric or, or anything else from, from the old days.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and what you know, what's old won't be new again. So I have no doubt we'll. Uh, <laughs> people think as, that the... <laughs> as much as everybody recoils about it, you know, this ain't going away. And, yeah, people think um... the one six
1: investigation has taken a while. There's still stuff going on that was handed off from the Mueller probe. <laughs> it never so. ends. The nightmare God. never
2: ends. The Nightmare never ends. <laughs> Thank so, you so okay. much,
1: everybody. Pick up uh, Compromise Tuesday, January twenty fifth, out in paperback. You can order now. Thank you very much, Pete Struck. Okay. Thank you. All right, everybody, it's time for some sabotage. So, sabotage this week, pretty simple. We found out Matt Gates's ex-girlfriend who did the three-way call with another one uh, of his ex-girlfriends um, and and tried to pressure her not to work with authorities, which is witness intimidation and obstructing justice, she was granted immunity, the girl who was on the call and recorded it with Matt and testified against him for that and for sex trafficking. She, was at the, she went to the Bahamas with the person who was a minor but was 18 at the time they went to the Bahamas. And uh, that's crossing state and international lines, I'm pretty sure, um, to, for commercial sex acts, which is sex trafficking. Um, and then, of course, she would be able to also tell, um, a corroborate Joel Greenberg's story because he's a shit witness, right? She'd be able to corroborate his story that Matt was started dating that girl when she was 17 and dating is a strong word. Uh, Venmoing. Let's say Venmoing that girl. Um, And that's sex trafficking a minor, if you were moving her. Anyway, you know that, and we also call it rape. Uh, But aside from that, we also had this immense, giant filing put out by the New York Attorney General, Letitia James. And uh, I've been saying all week I was going to go over that in depth, But I already did it on Twitter, and I put seriously about 10 hours of work into it. So I would just direct you to my Twitter account, at MullerSheWrote, and look for thread on the New York AG filing parts one, two, and three. I did part one. There's about 20 tweets in it. And at the end, I added a link to part two and a link to part three. So it did take me quite a while. I put a lot of work into it, and so I would like to just advise you to go check that out. But trust me, there's lots of crimes, and Tish James wouldn't have published all that evidence and witness testimony if Bragg, the Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, didn't already have it and didn't already have that testimony, right? Because she said in her filing, she's like, "Uh, you know what, because, you know, what what." (laughs) What does John Stewart call him? Clownstick. Fuckface Von Clownstick. Uh, because he opened his mouth and and said that I was just out for political, that this is a fishing expedition. I've got nothing and I'm just out because I don't like him. I'm just out doing this because I just don't politically like Donald Trump and his family. That's why I'm coming after you. Because he has made that allegation. Because he's leveled that allegation against me in, in order to quash these subpoenas, which I'm asking you to compel them to testify uh, because he did that, I'm going to need – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to update you on, on the crimes that I've found and show you that this isn't a fishing expedition and show you that there are crimes. So I'm going to share with you seven things, just seven, of the many things that, that I've uncovered. And she also said, I feel comfortable that sharing with you these seven particular things um, and, that, and sharing them will not jeopardize the current ongoing investigation or investigations, plural, which means that, and you know, when you, when you look at the stuff, there's some new things that we didn't know. Like I didn't know Ivanka was the contact point for Deutsche Bank. Uh, I didn't know they had a second set of books for multiple other things. Um, but I, we did know that Vrablich, Rosemary Vrablich, who wasn't named, but was hinted at as the Deutsche Bank banker lender, and referred to as she uh, in this filing, You know, she was mentioned. We know she's been interviewed. We know that um, the Forbes guy was deposed. We know that uh, Makani has been deposed. We know Eric Trump, who what we did learn about his deposition was that he he invoked his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination over 500 times. And while that can't be used against you in a criminal Manhattan district attorney investigation, it can certainly be used against you in civil litigation, which is what Tish James is trying to finish up by compelling the testimony of Trump and his giant crotch fruit. So that is um, part of sabotage because I think it's going to impact who I draft for my fantasy fantasy indictment league this week. But I I really want to encourage you to to go out to at Muller She Wrote on Twitter and check those threads out. I break it down in an easily understandable way um, and, you know, use appropriate profanity uh, here and there. And I think that uh, you'll enjoy it. So and I I put all that work into it. So I would appreciate if you would uh, check it out. And that would be, you know, in lieu of a a me just reading the thread to you here on this podcast, although I'm, I'm sure you love the sound of my voice, but. Um, I actually do have a birthday dinner I need to get to. No, I'm kidding. I, I would never. I would never put you off for my own personal gain. But um, that is sabotage this week. And with those two stories in mind, Maddie meets with his ex-girlfriend in the three-way call and sex trafficking a minor. With that and the New York Attorney General Tish James her filing uh, compelling the three Trump Jr. and Ivanka to testify are all going to impact the Fantasy Indictment League. So let's do it. I'm
2: going to be indicted. No, it is going to be okay. Indicted. Honey, dick. Indicted. Honey. I'm going
1: to be indicted. They can't. It's going to be okay. Just calm down. I
0: can't calm down. I'm going to be indicted.
1: Okay. Now, you know, I've had Maddie on my draft for a while. Um, So I'm going to keep him. I'm going to keep him. And and I'm I'm, I'm actually going to move him into the quarterback position because I feel like that postponement of the immunity deal was the last thing that they needed. And I think I went over that last week too, but we're going to keep them on. And uh, I'm also going to add Engels, who is wrapped up in that Greenberg investigation, as well as a person named L.A. Key. Both of them had weird contracts that they got paid from the tax collector's office for without doing any work. And we've already seen a couple of indictments for people like that. And so I'm expecting indictments for those. And so we got Gates, Engels, and L.A. Key out of the Middle District of Florida. Rudy, Tonzing, and DeGeneva out of the Southern District. But I think that's going to be for older crimes, not necessarily newer crimes. And and I, you know, Barbara Jones, who's the special master that's been going through all Rudy's stuff, she's been handing that stuff over on a rolling basis, right? So the prosecutors have it. They weren't waiting for her to go through everything and then she handed it all over. She was handing it over as she went through it. So I think they have enough. I think they'll indict Rudy and DeGeneva and Tonzing. Unless Tonzing and DeGeneva flip and do a plea deal. But uh, one, you know, one or the other. Uh, And that's out of the Southern District of New York. I think superseding Trump Organization and superseding Weisselberg indictments, um, along with, I'm going to put Ivanka, an Ivanka indictment all out of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, because Tish James, like I said, wouldn't have published all those crimes and witnesses if Bragg and the DA's office didn't already have it. And finally, I'm going to draft Sidney Powell out of the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, where a grand jury has been impaneled, headed up by the assistant U.S. attorney in that office in D.C., District of Columbia, Molly Gaston. She's been heading up a grand jury at least since September. At least since September. And... By my count, September, October, November, December, January, four months into an investigation. I think we should start seeing some indictments very soon, if not next week. All right. That is the show. I will see you tomorrow for The Daily Beans and also out today, MSW Book Club, Corruptible. We're we'll going over the next chapter by Brian Kloss. Absolutely incredible book. I really, really recommend you either get it on Audible or you buy it and read it. Um, it's it's truly It's so intelligent and so smart and funny. Um, So I, I, I highly recommend checking it out. All right. See you tomorrow also for the Daily Beans. And until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet and take care of your mental health. I've been A.G. And this is Muller She Wrote.